alaikum wa rahmatullah. May the peace, mercy, and blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be upon all of you. Welcome to Islam and Life. And thank you for welcoming us into your home this evening to share in some of these conversations. My name is Maimuna Hussain, and uh, we have the Khalid al as my co-host, and MP Ikra Khalid, and we'll talk a little bit more about tonight's show. Um, before that, I want to remind you that Islam and Life can be found as a podcast after tonight's recording. So if you want to listen to some of the things that we've been talking about in more depth, recommend it to some of your friends, or you know, when you're driving, working, whatever it is, uh, listen. Uh, so you can find it on our Max podcast page. You can find it on Google Podcasts. You can find it on Spotify, Amazon Music. You can find it on Google TuneIn and Alexa, on iHeartRadio, on Player FM, as well as Podchaser and the Samsung Podcast app. So as we begin, we say Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We begin in the remembrance and praise of Allah Subhanahu as we begin with anything that we hope will be of goodness. So let us begin with some verses of the Holy Quran. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم يا بني إسرائيل اذكروا نعمتي التي أنعمت عليكم وأوفوا بعهدي وأوفوا بعهدي أوف بعهدكم وإياي فارهبوا وَآمِنُوا بِمَا أَنزَلْتُ مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا مَعَكُمْ وَلَا تَكُونُوا أَوَّلَ كَافِرٍ بِهِ وَلَا تَشْتَرُوا بِآيَاتِي ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا وَإِيَّايَ فَاتَّقُونَ ولا تلبسوا الحق بالباطل وتكتموا الحق وأنتم تعلمون وأقيموا الصلاة وآتوا الزكاة واركعوا مع الراقعين أتأمرون الناس بالبر وتنسون أنفسكم وأنتم تتنون الكتاب أفلا تعقلون واستعينوا بالصبر والصلاة وإنها لكبيرة إلا على الخاشعين الذين يظنون أنهم ملاقو ربهم أنهم ملاقو ربهم وأنهم إليه راجعون. Welcome, my co-host, Brother Khaled Al Qazaz, and I want you to give us a little bit of context on this show, Islam and Life, and what it's about. So as we return back to this uh, uh, show, Islam and Life, we uh, bring back an opportunity uh, with our community to share their interests, share their stories, share uh, the perspectives that they would like to listen to and engage with on all issues that they deal with as Muslims and as Muslims in this country. 
uh, we try to bring in conversations that uh, uh, that are addressed and directed to them and we also try to uh, share an Islamic perspective an Islamic insight into these into these issues and into these uh, uh, topics of interest we try to extend through Islam and life beyond uh, 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 simply a fiqhi halal and haram discussion into more of a life discussion and this is why we call the show Islam and life and we discuss how to live as Muslims how to interact as Muslims how does Islam inform our day-to-day -day choices and our day-to-day -day activities in a way that inshallah brings benefit to us and everybody around us in this uh, in, in our communities and in this dunya and also uh, please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on, on, on the hereafter. Jazakallah khair and the other unique part to this is that the guests that we have in these conversations are people who are really contributing to the narrative of Islam in Canada. So they're on the ground, you know, uh, really engaged or they're, you know, committed from an academic perspective, from a narrative perspective. And so we, we try to have these conversations with them and we invite you as our audience to engage in the conversation as well. So we offer the live Q&A option as well. So um, you'll see some links popping up at the bottom. Uh, so you will have an option during the conversation, either to just chat into YouTube and send in your questions. You can also uh, join with us live through Zoom. So if you want to find our meeting ID, it's 905-822-2626. And so we can get you qu your question live with our guests as well. Um, and so having said that, before we get more into our episode for tonight, we want to talk to you a little bit about our critical question of the week. Again, Brother Khaled, can you tell us a little bit about why we're doing critical questions of the week and what it's meant to do? So again, as we uh, try to do things a little bit different, instead of having a one-way uh, channel where we uh, simply uh, uh, inform our audience about topics and, uh, and ideas, we want our community also to engage in a thoughtful, critical thinking process about these issues that we present in a way uh, that brings Islam and brings uh, uh, our perspectives into, uh, into these questions. So uh, uh, out of the norm, we're going to simply uh, uh, share some things to think about and you feel free to engage on online or on our chat or on email and we will bring it back into the show in uh, different episodes and into different discussions. So tonight's question is, are we raising our children and next generation as strong Muslims? Send us your thoughts. As Brother Khalid said, you can send it through any of our social media platforms. You can also email us at productions at macnet.ca. So what do you think about this? Are we raising our children and next generation as strong Muslims? Tell us your thoughts on this, inshallah. So, as we get into tonight's episode, we want to uh, continue on our second part of this conversation on Islamophobia in Canada. Um, you know, what are the responses? What is the community facing? And it's been a two-week special episode. Last week we had Aziza Kanji, a legal academic writer and journalist, as well as Mustafa Farouk, a former CCC. EO of NCCM uh, participating in this conversation and looking at the community responses and tonight we want to take a look uh, from the government side of this as well. Before we get into our conversation, let's take a look at what our research team has put together. Last week in Islam and Life we discussed the presence of structural Islamophobia within the Canadian government. Our guests emphasized the embedded Islamophobia in all levels, from legislative policies to appointing those who have perpetuated Islamophobia 
as experts to now combat it. However, they acknowledge that we should take inspiration from other minority groups and rise up to change the narrative and regularly educate ourselves to ensure change. Merely highlighting the issue is not enough. Rather, accountability and action is needed from the government to bring about change and for Muslims to feel safe and thrive in the place they call home. Notable members of the Muslim community have publicly called on the government to implement concrete changes. At the National Summit Against Islamophobia, MAC Executive Rania Lawindi addressed the Prime Minister and the Canadian government calling for immediate action and serious policy changes backed by a mandate and resources and tied to clear results. She stated there should be two primary goals. First, to eliminate institutional and systemic Islamophobia. Second, to institutionalize the fight against Islamophobia through the establishment of a federal office with resources, funding, and mandate to follow through with the commitments from the summit. Khalid Al-Qazez, Executive Director of the Institute of Religious and Social Political Studies, released an op-ed earlier this week with more recommendations and asking for, amongst other things, an apology by the CRA and the Prime Minister and an acknowledgement by the CRA of the damage to the Muslim community in order to restore trust. Furthermore, suspending CRA's approach to monitoring terrorism financing, investigation into the CRA, consultation with Muslim advocacy organizations and representation in oversight bodies were also recommended. The NCCM has also requested action by the federal government which includes a legislative review of the Canadian Human Rights Act to minimize the effects of Islamophobia using various methods including funding and support for those harmed by Islamophobia and collecting reliable data on white supremacist groups. So what has the government done to combat Islamophobia thus far? In 2022, the Senate Committee on Human Rights undertook a fact-finding mission listening to affected communities on the impact of Islamophobia. Some key takeaways from the committee hearings included issues surrounding under-reporting of hate-motivated crimes due to the community's relationship with the police and a call for greater investment in anti-racism education and bystander training. The intersection of gender, race and religion in Islamophobia, particularly the targeting of visibly Muslim women and black Muslims, was also highlighted. In addition to this mission, the government made the following commitments during the aforementioned summit. They committed to take a whole-of-government approach towards tackling misinformation and dedicating resources towards the work to combat Islamophobia and address concerns of Muslim organizations. So this begs the question, has the government delivered on these commitments? Have the requests by community members been taken into account? And what more can the community do on an individual and collective basis to hold the government accountable in a timely manner? We speak to Liberal MP Iqra Khalid, a lawyer and member of Parliament, who works closely with the Prime Minister and discuss the progress that has been made and where improvements are still needed. So welcome, MP Iqra Khalid. We're very happy to have you here with us live in studio. And many of you will remember uh, MP Ikra Khalid was uh, uh, the one that championed and uh, introduced uh, the bill, which was passed in 2017, M103, uh, the bill on systemic racism and religious discrimination. So we wanted to kind of start this conversation on your own 
personal journey. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, looking at Islamophobia in your in the position that you are and where you've been situated to, you know, where we've come. If you want to maybe give us a big uh, oversight and the journey itself. Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having me here today. I really appreciate this. Uh, it's been uh, really inspiring to watch Mac grow uh, to, to how big you've grown mm -hmm. uh, and the representation that you provide to Muslim communities uh, all across the country. Now, I'm, uh, I was 28 when I was first, uh, you know, running in politics, 29 when I was elected. And, um, you know, as a young brown Muslim woman, uh, it's, uh, it's hard to navigate because I don't see many people like myself uh, in, our, in our government or in, in leadership positions. Um, it was in the summer of uh, 2016 uh, when uh, there was an e-petition that was circulating across our country. Uh, this was e-petition 411 brought by um, former member of parliament Frank Bayliss. Uh, and this e-petition had about 70,000 signatures on it. Uh, it was asking our government to take action in combating uh, Islamophobia uh, in all levels and ensuring that, uh, that Muslim Canadians are not targeted, uh, that they're not victimized. Um, I thought that, you know, we should take action on what that e-petition was asking for. And so um, in December of 2016, I tabled Motion 103 in our House of Commons um, asking for the government to study the issue of systemic racism and religious discrimination in our country and to develop a, a whole of government approach on combating um, the, the hatred and xenophobia that's associated with it, <coughs> making sure that vulnerable communities are, are well provided for, are taken care of, that they have safety and security of person, uh, and have equality of opportunity in our, in our country. Um, and then in January, January 29th, we saw the most tragic thing happen in Canadian history. It was the first time where somebody, a gunman, had gone into a masjid and gunned down six people who lost their lives. Many others were, were injured. Lives were changed forever. Now, M103 was supposed to be uh, a kumbaya moment. It was supposed to be uh, a motion that would bring our house together, all parliament, all different parties together. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't. Um, it was very stressful time. But it was a very important conversation, I think, that Canadians had. Uh, during that uh, during that time, as as Canada was reeling from the death of uh, of these six Muslims in in a masjid in in Quebec City, um, there was a national conversation going on about our Charter of Rights and Freedoms in the context of M103. Where does one person's right start? Where does another rights uh, another person's right end? How do the rights complement each other, and how do they conflict? And whose rights ultimately are supreme? So these were all conversations that were happening uh, around M103 in the context of M103 and in, uh, with respect to Islamophobia. Now, Motion 103 did pass in the House with a majority vote uh, in March, March 23rd of 2017. And um, since then, there's been significant progress that has been made on this very important topic. We've had uh, the study was completed with 30 recommendations, one of which was to introduced January 29th as the Day of Action uh, Combating Islamophobia, and that has now uh, been completed. We are going to be going into our second anniversary of, uh, of, of commemorating January 29th as that day. Uh, we've also developed an anti-racism secretariat, an anti-racism strategy, and provided $23 million to needs-based communities over two years 
to ensure that those uh, organizations that need to build capacity are able to do so uh, with this funding. And then, you know, we saw the incidents at the IMO where, uh, you know, a Muslim brother lost his life. And then we saw uh, the Afzal family in London, Ontario, um, and these four innocent people also lost their lives because of Islamophobia. And that was the time when the Prime Minister and our government realized that there needs to be stronger, more concrete and right urgent action right away. That was when we had the summit on, um, on combating Islamophobia where community members from all across the country joined. Uh, and now to today where we've announced a special representative on combating Islamophobia uh, who is going to liaise with different government departments, who is going to actively engage Muslim communities across the country uh, to ensure that we're, we're keeping uh, on pushing that needle further towards progress and, and addressing the issues, not just for Canadians of today, but especially for young kids who are going to be living and, and working with each other in, in our community for tomorrow. Summarize the whole uh, show All in the of first it. question. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually were meant to ask the first question about uh, you as uh, Sister Iqra. This time. Oh, Sister Iqra. <laughs> how, how did you experience, experience Islamophobia personally uh, through this process? You are in a position of, you entered, as you said, uh, young into the parliament. You made a bold move with M103. But we all lived with uh, around you and felt uh, the heat that you had faced uh, specifically with this motion and probably otherwise. So can you share some of this uh, uh, particular experience? Absolutely. You know, as a, as, as a Muslim woman, um, the, the kind of hate that, uh, that we get is a little bit different uh, than what some of my white male colleagues, for example, would get. Um, while M103 was ongoing, actually, uh, maybe I'll take a step back and say the first article that was ever written about me, and I had just become a candidate um, in the Toronto Star, they, they published that uh, I was a sister of one of the Toronto 18, um, which I'm, I'm not. I just be, share a similar or same last name. Um, I guess that means that you and I are, are siblings <laughs> also. <laughs> but, um, but it was automatic that, uh, that um, I guess, microaggression against who I am and, and who I was. But thankfully, I've had some really strong mentors across uh, over the past number of years. When M103 was being discussed in the country, um, there was uh, significant amounts of, um, of hate that were directed towards me and, and to, to people that look like me, to Muslim community especially visible, uh, visibly Muslim community members. Um, you know, death threats uh, became uh, quite normal for me. In fact, I still deal with them. Uh, additional security was, uh, was a reality. Um, but I, I like to focus on, on like, I remember there was this one lady who sent me a letter from Saskatchewan. And in that letter, she wrote, um, hang in there, we have your back. Uh, you are doing the right thing and keep going. And I received thousands of such letters too. So I, I always choose to focus on the positives as opposed to the negatives. I've realized that this is my reality. But as we trailblaze, as we kind of carve a path for future generations, somebody's got to carry that brunt. And I'm like, I have the support of a, a strong, phenomenal community behind me. And you guys are a huge part of that. Uh, so, you know, we, we march on. We are strong people, and I think the, the important part of it all is to be positive about, uh, about how we approach this topic and how we, how we live together as a community. So similarly, also again focusing on the personal, the, uh, so how do you, it's, it is quite different uh, that you, your, your reaction might be 
when you hear of incidents of Islamophobia, for example, the the incidents that uh, some of our sister uh, black Muslim women sisters faced in Edmonton, for example, or even the the very the more difficult that everybody had reacted to, how is it different between you and uh, other colleagues in Parliament? Well. Um you know, the the type of comments that are made towards me are very different than they would be made towards, you know, some of my uh, non-Muslim white colleagues, for example. Um, so, you know, like as a racialized uh, woman, uh, there are, uh, I, and I don't want to repeat uh, no, the, I the kind reaction. of language. I meant your, your, uh, your reaction to these kind of things, because it is different when you feel that actually the person who was affected was a sister of yours or potentially a sister of yours or somebody whom uh, you represent actually one way or another or an organization that you volunteered for or you interacted with. It is different when you're put in that place than the othering that some other uh, uh, politicians might be doing. Yeah. No, you know, it's... Uh it's easier to empathize and to relate because I know exactly what it feels like, right? right? And so, I, you know, oftentimes I'll have people reaching out to me from across the country, sharing their experiences. Um, and, you know, we try to direct them as best as we can. Um, and that's why I think it's so important to, when we talk about effective representation, um, that people should be able to see themselves in, in their government uh, or in their parliament, uh, in their democratic institution. Um, it's, uh, it's not always easy listening to the stories. It's um, frustrating. Uh, oftentimes it's you know you just want to rip your hair out sometimes because as as fast as I want to go as fast as we want to go um, it's sometimes we're just not going fast enough right we're not preventing a lot of the you know these really sad incidents from happening so it's frustrating but uh, you know inshallah we'll keep uh, keep plugging along Thank you. Well, if you allow me sister Mimun, I just have one uh, one other uh, question to uh, to to share here at and uh, because I attended the, the announcement that you uh, you uh, you led today as the uh, MC of the of the of this announcement uh, with Minister Hussein, uh, announcing uh, it's a, a significant announcement for our community. For the first time, we have a representative in government whose mandate is to understand and combat uh, Islamophobia within the government and in Canada in general. And uh, and uh, mashallah, that choice even that was made uh, through uh, weeks of uh, consultation and engaging many in the community led to an excellent outcome with Sister Amira Al-Gawabi with all her experiences in uh, fighting, against, fighting against Islamophobia and uh, racism. Uh, I think it was an excellent uh, uh, choice and uh, uh, we, we, we as a community and as organizations, we stand behind uh, uh, this uh, choice and this uh, representation. Uh, however, it also raises uh, expectations, and uh, uh, we've we as a community have heard a lot uh, from uh, all the way from the prime minister to every minister who is involved about their commitment to uh, eradicate Islamophobia from uh, from within. Uh, and there wasn't uh, any more perfect timing for the show uh, to have it on this day without. Uh, without having inside information, but uh, and we're happy that you're with us uh, today to share. How did this decision come about? And uh, and really, what is the internal expectations and uh, from you as a Muslim parliamentarian and uh, member of the party, uh, what are your personal expectations of this position? And what do you think realistically uh, Sister Amira can do in this capacity? Well, 
this process started in uh, June of 2022 uh, when we started to discuss amongst ourselves what such a representative, uh, what their role would be, um, whether this office would have teeth, um, you know, what would be their, their powers uh, to compel evidence or to compel a department to do X, Y, Z. So throughout uh, consultations with the community, uh, we came up with a, a mandate uh, for this special representative. I think um, Minister Ahmed Hussein did a phenomenal job in engaging everybody. To uh, now finally having uh, Sister Amira Al-Gawabi, she is a phenomenal advocate. I love her to death, uh, and I'm proud to call her a friend also. Um, my expectations uh, are to ensure that she is successful in her role. As this is the inaugural, the first time that uh, such a position has been created and and, uh, and we're going to go forth, there's not much of a precedent that has already been set. So she is going to be creating that precedent. And we wanna make sure as members of parliament and as community members uh, as well that, that she is successful. And so we must work together and make sure that she spends the first number of months and years to get to know uh, and to understand what the systemic issues are within government departments uh, within organizations, within the community, and then to create concrete steps on eradicating. How do we work on eliminating systemic racism uh, within uh, you know, government departments, for example, the CRA being a very good example? How do we create those concrete measures to, to do that? And I think it's only going to be done with consultation <clears throat> with the community and understanding specifically what the issues are within, within any government department. I guess we can get into the difficult questions there. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a good segue, uh, MP Ekra, in terms of the systemic issues, right? Um, you know, you, you spoke a little bit about your own personal experiences, and we know there are so many, but this, these are not individual instances. This is part of something larger. It's structural. And so, you know, I, I hear you saying that Amira, you, the hope is that Amira will, inshallah, start to look into this in more depth. But what can we expect on the ground? You know, what can we look at um, when we think about the everyday life experiences of your average Muslim youth, your average sister who's wearing a hijab, you know, crossing the street? What can we actually start to expect? Because I think you introduced that bill in 2017, here we are in 2023, we have a position, but what's happening? Because we've had increased acts of hatred, of violence, and you listed them at the beginning of the show. When and how are we going to start to experience that change? What's that going to look like? Well, I look at something, an initiative that uh, NCCM had started uh, a number of years back, and that was to start uh, cataloging all of the, the incidents of, uh, of hate that happened towards Muslims. Um, on their website, they, they require the community to proactively tell them. If you don't feel comfortable going to the police, there should be some way of collecting the data that, you, that could back up you know, what work needs to be done. How is this uh, hatred manifesting within the community? What's its impact going to be? Similarly, now as Amira sets up this office, I think data collection, understanding, um, and documenting each and every instance is going to be very, very important in how those next steps are, are going to be planned out, how we're going to strategize, how do we deal with, with these incidents that we have. You know, for example, the CRA is a, is a, is a great way to understand you know, Muslim-based charities, for example, being targeted more. 
Um, there was a report a number of years ago by the Public Safety uh, Department that specifically um, you know, identified and, and used uh, Islamophobic terms when referring to uh, Muslim Canadians um, when it came to national security issues. And that involved a significant amount of advocacy on behalf of Muslim caucus, Muslim MPs, but also the caucus in general, um, to have the, that wording changed in that report before it became uh, public and, and mainstream. So it's really about identifying and then strategizing as to how, how we're going to combat it. And I think that is where Amira will need all of our help to ensure that we are documenting effectively what the systemic issues are, what are the concrete examples of that systemic racism in our, in our, in our government. I'll start by saying that uh, our Muslim community and our many parts in our Muslim community, uh, uh, like uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and want to believe what he says. So uh, uh, the Prime Minister uh, speaks about the existence and, uh, of Islamophobia in the government, uh, and uh, he made a commitment to find the, to the, to uncover it and to uh, do what it takes to make this change. However, uh, this is, I believe, the uh, eighth year now in, in government, and we see this renewed commitment, these uh, statement as, statements as a community, but many in the community are starting to question, so when are we going to see change? And what kind of change are we going to see? Uh, we see uh, we've seen some uh, funding to some initiatives. We now see the appointments of uh, uh, these positions and the directorate that was formed. But on the ground, we still do not see real change. Our Muslim organizations are still intimidated uh, by CRA to an extent that some organizations would choose not to put Muslim on their charity application to get, uh, to get uh, we still see uh, Muslims individ Muslim individuals being uh, racially profiled on the borders and uh, in their uh, refugee applications. And uh, the community still does not see that impact. When and how will we see that? That's a really good question, Miller. I have to say that there's no flip of a switch that uh, eliminates. Uh, we can't legislate people to love each other. We can't legislate people to be inclusive and to accept one another for who we are. It takes all levels of government. It takes civil society. It takes grassroots organizations. It takes advocacy from individual Canadians to ensure that we're building that, that fulsome um, society, right, where, where we are accepting. I was actually speaking uh, with the Prime Minister earlier today uh, to thank him for, uh, for his advocacy and, and for always standing by Muslim Canadians, and he has, shoulder to shoulder, um, over these past eight years. You know, I, at the beginning, uh, I had uh, listed a number of initiatives that we have taken over the past seven uh, years uh, in government, but I, I want to talk about uh, what is next, right? What is coming for our future generations? One thing that I'm really advocating for right now is to have a national roundtable uh, that brings in experts, uh, equity-seeking groups, that brings in food and nutrition, mental health, uh, cybersecurity, financial literacy, um, provinces and territories, uh, their representatives to come together at the table and say, how can we build a national, a nationwide education curriculum that is going to provide the basis for our kids to know what they need to know in order to build a more su a sustainable, uh, equal, and equity-seeking society 
like the one that we live in here in Canada. When we target future generations, I think that is where we uh, end the systemic nature of it. Uh, and as while we're also working on those long-term goals, we need to work on the short-term goals. So you're absolutely right. I mean, as I said earlier, we need to identify, collect the data, and systemically work at it. Um, the Prime Minister is listening. He is paying significant attention to Muslim Canadians and, uh, and, and what their needs are. And the needs are not just uh, you know, uh, combating Islamophobia in, in a way that there's peace and safety and security of the person, but also about equality of opportunity, right? If uh, you know, like I, I don't wear a hijab, but sister, you do, right? How does that impact where you're able to work? How does that impact uh, how you, uh, you know, uh, engage in, in a society, in a community? If we're in the short term, we need to address those systemic issues, ensure that equality of opportunity exists, but then in the long term, ensure that we're raising our next generation to be inclusive for everybody. Yes, a vision for the future, inshallah, collective vision. I want to remind our viewers uh, that, of course, you're invited to engage in this conversation with MPF Khalid. So uh, you can join uh, by calling or joining us on the meeting room at 905-822-2626. Type in your questions on YouTube. Also, let us know where you're from. We want to know wh who's joining from where. So uh, give us a shout on YouTube, and we'll try to uh, get to that as well. And we'll be getting to some questions shortly. And Ikra, I want to connect on, again, going back to this personal piece um, and connecting to this point that you said about youth, you know, uh, and the fact that when Islamophobia is really real in your life, dealing with it in your life, and you alluded to some of those experiences that you had, what can we do to move ourselves beyond that? What can we do for, what can our youth who are listening, who uh, look up to you perhaps even, you know, as uh, in, in leadership and, you know, championing some of these causes, uh, you know, what can they look, what, what would you say to them, you know? I uh, remember when um, just engaging with, with youth in our, in our community uh, and just remembering how scared they were yes. uh, at one point, um, you know, like going to the local masjid, for example. Um, like, I, I remember saying and thinking that, you know, when you're scared, when you, when you naturally feel like you want to close the doors to protect yourself, that's exactly when you should be opening the doors. That's exactly when you should be inviting people in. Um, that's it, when you should be going out proactively, engaging with other communities as well, to show them who you are, right? I mean, we're just as Canadian as anybody else. And I think building upon the Muslim identity as well as that Canadian identity is the way that we, uh, that we move forward. When we find and connect our differences, sure, but also our similarities as Canadians. You know, um, people ask me all the time, what happens in a masjid? So come, I'll take you, right? Um, and then I, I know uh, many Muslims who say, you know, I drive by that temple. I have never wandered in. And I've always wanted to know what was inside that temple. Well, go and, and find out, right? When we engage with each other, that's kind of how we, you know, and learn something different. That's how we build those bridges within, within communities. For our youth, one of the, the main things that I loved when I was a, a kid growing up, you know, fresh off the, the, the boat and, uh, you know, eager to start a life in, in just everywhere. 
I would go volunteer at the food bank. I would go volunteer. I, I used to teach kids art at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Like I, anywhere I could go and volunteer, I would. What that did for me was that it helped me understand the community that I live in a little bit better. And it helps the people around me understand who I am as an individual with my intersectional identities as a Muslim, as a woman, as a, a colored person, and as a Canadian as well. So let me uh, take it a step uh, deeper and we will divide uh, that. We want to come out, uh, so someone asked me before we did the show, so what do we want to come out of this show? And of course, we, as you said, we can't flip a switch, you can't make a commitment now and tomorrow, or I mean like uh, make a decision now and tomorrow the government will act on, but at least as a community and as the audience are engaged, they want to see a roadmap of uh, uh, considerations and commitments and uh, commitments as well. So, Let's divide it into three or four uh, points. Uh, the first one would be on legislation, which is uh, 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 things that are within your reach as an as an as an MP. Uh, however, of course, legislation is happening at different. Uh, so, for example, Bill Twenty One is at the uh, provincial level, but this kind of legislation, as you uh, as uh, many in the Liberal Party have indicated, is uh, problematic and pro- primarily problematic. Muslim uh, Muslim women. So how can uh, how can the liberal government uh, intervene uh, in order to improve the conditions of Muslim women who are suffering from this uh, specific legislation? So just on Bill Twenty One, um, the the government and our our Justice Minister, you know, the Attorney General and our Prime Minister have said that they will be interfering, uh, intervening, and appealing that decision at the Supreme Court level. We do need for um, you know a case like this one to go through uh, the the court systems uh, and uh, and ultimately get to the conclusion that it needs to get to, which is that there is a violation of constitutional rights uh, with Bill Twenty One. The other thing that uh, that we've been working on for the past number of years now, and uh, hopefully uh, very soon we'll be uh, moving forward, is um, reinstating what is what was known then as Section Thirteen of uh, the Canadian Human Rights uh, Act. Um, this allows for civil remedy for those that have faced online harm um, because of who they are. And that includes, uh, you know, dealing with Islamophobia online. We're also narrowing and defining concretely what hate means in our criminal code so that the police are now equipped with the proper tools to be able to lay the charges. Right. I mean, when somebody leaves me a voicemail and this happens uh, often, uh, you know, with uh, threatening to kill me or, you know, making a lot of uh, nasty comments about who I am as a person, it's difficult for the police to, to lay a charge when there has been no threat or, you know, within the framework of, of what the, the current criminal code uh, is right now, um, for them to, to act on, on, uh, on defending and, and laying charges uh, for, for the people that are facing that hate. So there's that work going on in the context of online hate. Um, and we know that you know when it's online, it festers and it becomes embedded in our in our reality in our lived experiences as well. A number of years ago, we had taken some of these uh, groups that were organizing online um, and declared them to be terrorist organizations. Um, these were white supremacist groups, and what that did was it ultimately disbanded them from the online space, and it took away their ability to organized financially uh, to come together as a group because now they were within that definition that we're trying to 
to limit their their mobility that would uh, you know that they were using to to target uh, people like Muslim Canadians. So the work is being done, and I really encourage um, our viewers and and yourselves as well. Uh, if you have ideas as to how you think we can move forward, work with us. Let us know. The feedback is is a gift, and uh, and I love to receive that. So the next level would be on uh, on uh, uh, government, all government policies, and uh, you uh, lived through that phase, not necessarily in government, but it seems that the all government policies towards the Muslim community post 9-11 uh, uh, was looking at the Muslim community from a security lens. And it actually impacted many of the policies that are unchanged until today. And uh, the specific example that was uncovered over the past few months was the example with uh, uh, Revenue Canada and the CRA and the special divisions that uh, target Muslim organizations. If you tra track this entirely, you will find that a policy, the National Inherent Risk Assessment, was created as a reaction to uh, uh, post 9-11 and international commitments. But the outcome that the, the previous government uh, uh, produced of a document basically would limit and uh, 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 led to the designation of uh, the focus would be on Muslim organizations and, and uh, racialized, uh, racialized communities. That policy, unfortunately, did not change in 2015. And it is about to change in these uh, days. I'm not sure how, I don't know how, how familiar are you with the National Risk Assessment, but this is really a, a, an example of a, an all-government uh, response that has not changed. That's a really good point. Now... One of the roles that I play in Parliament uh, is that I sit on the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Uh, this is a top secret committee. The work that we do is top secret. Um, I am, once again, I think the, the only uh, racialized person on that committee. Um, I'm obviously a, a Muslim. When we sit at, at the decision-making tables, when we have access to you know, what it is that we're trying to, to do, which is to ensure that there's equality for everybody, to ensure that there's no stereotypes, that people are not um, being judged for who they, well, who they are and who they pray to. Um, sitting at those decision-making tables makes a really big uh, impact. And although I can't talk about the work that I do uh, in MSICOP, I can tell you that, um, that the community is well represented uh, around that table. Um, there are changes that are being made slowly, systematically, um, but nothing would happen overnight. And, you know, like one thing I always tell, especially our young people, you know, get on, get onto those tables, you know, go and, and, and sign up for the army, go and sign up and work in the RCMP, go and, and sit where, where these decisions are made and, and work towards sitting there. Um, this is a generational dilemma that we're facing. Um, and as the Muslim community grows, uh, you know, a, a within Canada uh, and becomes more sophisticated, now we are understanding what the issues are and are now working in an organized way to, to combat them. And we need the support of, of young people and, and obviously organizations like yourselves in order to make sure that, that we're always holding the feet to the fire and, uh, and holding uh, you know, departments accountable that are displaying this kind of uh, negative behavior. We have a question um, from online. Um, again, connected to what you're saying and maybe perhaps even some frustration on the ground you know, in this 
holding over until the next generation, as you're saying. Can you comment on the inaction of resolving systemic Islamophobia and lack of restorative justice as a result of the cyclic expectation for marginalized communities to just forgive and forget? So how do you deal with this on the ground? Um, well, I don't think that, uh, that there's, uh, well, if there used to be an expectation for marginalized communities to forgive and forget, I don't think that that expectation exists today. Um, as I was just saying, I think the community is becoming more sophisticated, is, is holding governments and all organizations to account, those that are perpetuating Islamophobia, for example. Um, I think that it uh, it's breaking the cycle is not as easy as we tend to think. And at the beginning of the show, you know, like I listed out all the things that we have done um, over the past seven years to try to break that cycle, to ensure that Muslim Canadians have the support that they need to be able to have equality of opportunity in our country. Um, and you know, like I said, brother, if nothing happens with a flip of a switch, uh, it is a constant effort to continue to break that cycle. And inshallah, we will. So uh, uh, a next uh, 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 point that is related to the expectations of things that can be done is uh, related uh, to transparency and oversight. So, uh, uh, and you as a member of parliament in general, uh, even though we have a system where uh, the majority is also the go is also uh, choosing the government, and this makes it even more of a responsibility on individual MPs to really take uh, this oversight, uh, general oversight responsibility, but also push for uh, more transparency. Uh, and I believe the most uh, recent discussion on this was the one related to CBSA oversight, and uh, and uh, many of the security agencies have created this kind of uh, chill effect within our community because of lack of transparency and uh, oversight. Can you tell us what is the government doing in this and, and what can we expect of this? Yes, absolutely. Um, we actually have uh, a, uh, a legislation that's going through the House of Commons right now. In fact, I spoke on this, I've spoken on this issue twice now in the House of Commons to say, look, we need to get our act together. We need to create this oversight body um, that governs how the CBSA treats the people that are going through our borders and how uh, you know there should be a complaint system uh, where if somebody is mistreated by the CBSA or there's some issues or challenges with how the CBSA is behaving um, at the borders, that there is some kind of recourse, uh, some kind of complaint mechanism for a Canadian to go and uh, and, and make a complaint. So I will keep you posted on how that's uh, progressing in the House and inshallah very, very soon uh, that uh, that oversight body will be created. So as we wrap up tonight, we want to welcome a question um, online. So are you with us? Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Please go ahead, your question to uh, MP Ikra. Yes, uh, just a second. Can, can, can you guys hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, so just a quick uh, question. I understand that combating Islamophobia is clearly becoming a need in, in, in the current society, in our Canadian society. And inshallah, we are on our way to, to um, you know, one day uh, make this thing a, a thing in the past. However, my, what, what, what my question is, what is the government doing to attend to those who have been who have already been directly affected or impacted by Islamophobia? For example, what is uh, what has the government uh, done for the survivors of, uh, survivors of the Quebec uh, mosque shooting or the family members of the victims 
or for the uh, members of the Afzal family uh, who, who were left behind uh, as a continued effort uh, of, uh, you know, for compensating for the loss. That's a really good question for Zana, and I really appreciate you asking that question. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, people that are suffering um, or have suffered uh, at the hands of Islamophobic incidents uh, do need to get the support from the government, and that support has been provided to victims and families in the Quebec mosque shooting and in, uh, in, the, in the London attack as well. Um, but I, I would love to, to hear from you how you think we can, as a government, better support um, those, those victims as well. Uh, please write to me, ikra.khaled at parl.gc.ca. I really look forward to hearing your, your perspective on this. Thank you so much. So as we wrap up tonight, I don't know, Brother Khaled, if you would like to ask one, one more question, one, please uh, go ahead. Because yes. uh, MP Khaled has uh, uh, shared uh, a lot and, and said many things that uh, uh, is, uh, is uh, really important. And I think... Uh, I want her to uh, to make a commitment, but in the light of uh, the symbol that you're wearing today, and uh, and uh, I know we this is not just a token, but it is. Uh, I I feel that we wear uh, these kinds of symbols to remind us, but also to uh, remind us of our commitments. So, what does the symbol, the green square symbol, uh, remind you and uh, uh, for our community and? Uh, what is the commitment that you can can make for for our community for our community? I appreciate the question. So this is the the Green Square campaign. It was started by NCCM um, following the Quebec mosque shooting. The the Green Square uh, represents the carpet that um, we couldn't get the the blood stains out of uh, with um, with the killing of the six uh, the six people and uh, the nineteen that were injured as well. Um, the commitment really from, from my end is to make sure that not only do we never forget what happened, but also that we prevent such incidents from happening again. The Muslim community need not be terrorized anymore. Um, and I have, a, I, I commit, and I know that our prime minister has a similar commitment to always do the right thing and ensure that we are taking every step possible to save lives and provide safety and security for, for Muslim Canadians living uh, in Canada. Um, I wear this green patch uh, around January 29th every year to remind myself and to show other people what the consequences of hate are. Um, I think about those, those people very, very often uh, and, and I can't begin to imagine the people that had to clean up the carpet uh, after after such a tragedy in the masjid, so you know that's why I wear my green square, and uh, and I, I encourage everybody on January 29th to 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 wear a green square yourself. Um, and again, let me know what your ideas are. My commitment to the community is always there, uh, and I will always speak up for what is right and and try to do what is the right thing for our community as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, MP Ikra Khalid. Thank you so uh, Again, much. this is a live show, and we know that MP Ikra is running for a flight very soon after. So uh, thank you for your time here with us and for this conversation that's uh, really important for us in the community around Islamophobia in Canada. And uh, for those of you that uh, tuned in uh, later this evening, uh, you can find this recording on uh, a podcast recordings as well after tonight, inshallah. Um, and we encourage you to tune in uh, every Thursday night. This is a special session at 
at 6 o'clock, but usually we're 7.30 live every Thursday, inshallah. And uh, with that, I don't know if Brother Khaled, you want to say anything before we close tonight? Yes, uh, next week uh, we'll, uh, we'll tackle uh, a new issue that is of interest of the Muslim for the Muslim community. And as we address systemic and uh, big, big issues of Islamophobia, we're going to go into the uh, Muslim family living in Canada and uh, how and, and uh, uh, what should we, what are our considerations and challenges for our uh, uh, families, Muslim families here in Canada. Uh, we'll bring in different aspects, different angles, and we'll have uh, scholars on the show as well. So uh, we look forward to having another great conversation next week. So tune in. And uh, don't forget to send us your thoughts on the critical question of the week. And inshallah, uh, with that, we again, we say thank you to MP Ikra Khalid for everything she's doing in the community. And uh, we will see you next week, inshallah. And uh, Brother Khalid, if you can maybe do a closing dua for us. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik, nashadu an la ilaha illa ant, nastaghfiruka, natubu ilayk. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, wal-asr, inna al-insana lafi khusr, illa ladina amanu wa amilu salihati wa tawasaw bil-haqi wa tawasaw bil-sabr. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi Life is an online production.